I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas, brought to you by Red Wing, episode 41. Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Great to be here, James. We're in December. The holidays are coming. Uh, Red Wing sponsoring our podcast. It just does not get much better than this. Yeah, except I, I, I already dropped the ball because this is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. I'm James Hahn, the second from TribeRocket.com. We are a sales-driven marketing firm. I like what I said last week. It's in my sidebar on the blog. We're not marketers. We're a sales team that's damn good at marketing. So what about you, Mark? Yeah, Mark with Modapoint.com. We are an oil and gas-focused market research company. Uh, if you have a product or service that you're trying to sell the oil and gas industry, we will tell you where you fit and why people will buy it. How are you doing this week? I'm doing awesome this week. It's uh, just it's just a great week. We're in December. It's uh, winter in Houston, which means it's below 75 degrees. Um, we got an awesome sponsor, uh, sponsoring a podcast. Everything is just. You like it when it's below 75 degrees, but you, you ride. You, you don't. You you ride on four wheels, not two. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I tell you what, you know, you're from Houston when it gets below 90, and you put the windows down, open the sunroof. I saw uh, quite a few people riding around this week in their drop tops. Yeah. <laughs> With the tops Only down. It gets below 90 as everybody opened the, their convertibles and sunroofs. Right. All right. So um, I, I heard that you had a conversation with Red Wing yesterday. Yeah, it's uh, we're figuring out uh, what's the best way to help our audience with Red Wing. And if re- people don't know who Red Wing is, most people in the oil and gas industry know them as Red Wing Shoes. Um, everybody in the industry owns a pair of their boots. I own a pair of their steel toe boots, but they're so much more than boots. They do a lot of personal protective clothing, and we're looking at doing some stuff for our audience. So people stay tuned. Not only do we have some really cool uh, Red Wing giveaways, but we're looking to um, bring some good, helpful content to our audience, courtesy of Red Wing. And we're also looking at doing some events. Um, you know, wherever Red Wing's exhibiting oil and gas events, we'll do some uh, imitation-only stuff for our audience. And we're talking about maybe doing a very specific, very special um, invitation-only cocktail event for our audience for Red Wing in the future. So, folks, stay tuned. Awesome. Let's get into the stories because there is a lot going on. Um, and it's just nice to not have to talk about what everyone else is talking about <laughs> these days because it's just, oh, man, it's too much. So let's talk some oil. India in talks to build $4.5 billion subsea pipeline to transport gas from Iran. Yeah, this is a project that got put on hold a while back, and it's uh, being revisited. And basically, and if you've listened to the show, you know we've talked about this. India's consumption of crude oil and natural gas is growing like crazy. And in the very near future, it's going to actually pass up China. So this is just a, a perfect example of how India is doing some midstream um, CapEx projects to be able to import gas from Iran to feed its need. Uh, the nice thing about this is that it's going to help the people in Iran because they're going to make the money right from doing this. It's going to help all the people that that actually construct this pipeline. This is not like a six-month project. It's going to be a multi-year project. And it's actually going to help the people of India. You know, India's air pollution is extremely bad because they have a lot of coal-fired electrical plants. And they're going to use this gas not only for um, – for electrical generation, but for other things like um, cooking and stuff, which will lower their emissions. So this is all in all, it's just another example of how gas is and midstream is ruling, you know, the immediate future and in, in the in the far future as well. So you mentioned it was put on hold, and I'm I'm glad you brought that point out because the conspiracy theorists among us might say, well, didn't 
someone just shoot down and wasn't India involved in Russia and so forth? Um, there's no way this could be a conspiracy theory. It was put on hold because of the sanctions. So why would you spend the money if you were India on to transport natural gas from Iran when Iran was not allowed to transport natural gas? It just didn't make business sense. Now that the sanctions look like they're going to be lifted, they're going to move forward with the project. Good stuff. All right, China fuel. Re, um, sorry, China fuel shipment surged to record as oil imports rebound. Yeah, we, we've talked about this before in the past too. So China is importing a lot of crude, and what they're doing is they're refining it and they're building refineries like crazy, so they can refine the ex the so they can export the refined products: jet fuel, diesel, gasoline, ethanol, methanol, all the petrochemicals. And so this is them. This is China trying to get ahead of that uh, boom and export business that we talked about for our, our um, 2016 predictions. And they, they talked about the, econ- the economy is recovering slower than expected. How, how is the economy in the – what's going on over there? Yeah, so people get this mixed up all the time. So the Chinese economy grows year over year. It has been for a long time. That growth, if you think of a bell curve, was at the very beginning of that bell curve up until just recently where the growth was over double-digit growth. Now it's at the top of the bell curve. So the growth is still happening, but it's happening much slower. Their growth is still much faster than the U.S. or Europeans' economic growth. So this is one of those metrics that we use when we forecast when we think the price of crudes rebound is we're watching that slowdown in growth, but that growth is still there, which means they're increasing their consumption, um, which eventually will uh, eat up the, the oversupply that's in the market, which will cause prices to go back up. So in China, a recession isn't going backwards. It's slowing. It's slowing down. It's, it's not a recession. It's they're, they're not going backwards. It's just the growth metrics is slowing. The Chinese government does a really, really good job. Now, of course, they're, they're a communist government, so they have control over everything. But they do a really good job of putting money and effort where it's needed to keep the economy moving forward. It says biggest quota. What are some of these quotas that they have to make that they're talking about? So in China, there's something called teapots, which I'm not sure where they got that name from. But a teapot is what you and I would call an independent, right? Not a super major, not a knock, but an independent. And so these, these teapot quotas um, have been raised, which allows them to export more, right? So this is and, – and the reason that the quotas have been raised for these independents or teapots is that China sees the need um, to capture more of this export ma- uh, market globally. And so they're trying to get their products on the market before anybody else. I'm not going to sing that song. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. All right. Uh, I put these two back to back here, and I, maybe you saw what I was going going for here, but Devon Energy and Link Midstream team up for $4 billion acquisition from private from private companies. What is going on here? Yeah, this is great that you put these two back to back because they dovetail so well. So basically, Devon Energy is using its um, superior position in the market, right? They have less debt, more cash to buy somebody that is in a less um, good position in the market. And basically, this plays in Oklahoma. Um, it's some very good, strong reservoirs out there um, that um, that uh, Enlink is just doesn't have the money right now in this low crude price environment to, to capitalize on. So Devon's buying them so that when the price returns, they're sitting on some great acreage that nobody else has. So it's a Powder River Basin. Yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's just north of Texas in Oklahoma. In so I'm looking at here, world-class development play largest and best position, 430 net surface, 430,000 net surface acres. 
you so this is this is stuff they're all going to drill in 2016 um I, I don't think they'll drill in 2016 this is devon um building its reservoirs of prime acreage i mean they may do some drilling there depending on when the price rebounds but as soon as the price hits 60 dollars uh, a barrel devon's gonna be blowing and going in this in this uh, reservoir and they're gonna be making serious money one of the earliest terms i learned in this industry was stock pump you know buying acreage to to pump a stock so this is actually the opposite, which will lead us into the next story. Okay, let's talk about the next story then. Devon's $2.5 billion shale grab prompts downgrade warning. Yeah, so when you're a public company and you spend money and your debt goes up, the quality or the value of your stock goes down. I mean, it just makes sense, right? So this is Devon knowing ahead of time that its its um, credit is going to be downgraded and its stock value is going to be downgraded because they spent cash on this play that is not um, uh, productive right now. At, at this today, it's like what thirty seven dollars a barrel for um, for sweet crude. So um, you know they knew ahead of time this was going to affect their shareholder value and they knew ahead of time it was going to affect their credit rating, but they did it anyway. This is this is a very strategic move by Devon Energy. Why would they do it anyway? And I know you just said why they would, but why would they do that? Okay, so let me let me talk about Modal Point, give you a real-world example. So I, there's some competitors of mine, some smaller competitors of mine that just started up uh, out there, right? They're probably worth maybe a million dollars, and so you do three times earnings, so maybe at the most they're worth $3 million. I could go to my bank right now and borrow $3 million to buy one of my competitors. Now, if somebody wanted to buy Modal Point, I'm now worth less because I have this $3 million worth of debt. But what I'm doing is making a strategic move knowing that if I buy one of my competitors, I will increase my business. Does that make sense? That that makes a lot of sense. How does OPEC fall into this? Oh, OPEC doesn't fall into this. We can't export our crude. <laughs> <It's just laughs> that simple. But that doesn't stop Bloomberg from talking about it. Yeah, I, I, I am firmly convinced that Bloomberg um, is playing the the buzz that it creates every time it talks about twenty dollars a barrel, just to drive um, traffic back to their site or, or back to their analyst. It's um, I'm not saying it won't hit twenty dollars a barrel. <clears throat> I'm also not saying that aliens won't land and give us the keys to time travel. <laughs> oh man! And <laughs> I had a I had a follow up on their pipeline assets, but now you just threw me all off. <laughs> um it, you know we're going through these stories so fast it's it's uh we, we've got to balance it out between um this this and also our 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 new our new show which which is launching today yeah and and our, our new show is about careers in oil and gas and and we're trying to balance the show um if you're looking for a new gig in oil and gas or you've never had a job in oil and gas and you want one we're going to try to help you get that at the same time, if you have an existing career in oil and gas and you want to make the best of it, we're going to help, try to help you with that as well. So, folks, uh, uh, subscribe to our new show when it comes out. It's going to be really good. Yeah, so it's it's called – it's very it, – these are very straightforward, which is the Oil and Gas Careers podcast, the show for anyone looking for a career in the oil business. And it's always a good time to be in the oil business because there's it's always going to be growing – in one of the four segments, we talk about that all the time. Yeah, one of the segments is always hot. In my 20-some-odd years of being in this industry, I have never, never seen it where one of the segments is just not blowing and going. 
Let's talk about that. I'm going to take a take a side sidebar here because you and I had a conversation the other day about how you got into the industry and had a very different experience than everyone else. And I think that might be something to talk about because myself and most of the people listening didn't, you know, we came up in one one segment and only had a one segment worldview. How did you come to where you are now? Yeah, so this was a very long time ago. Um, and I was traveling the world building cell sites. And I met a woman and I wanted to settle down, quit traveling so much. And so I had connections with the phone company in the East. Uh, it was called Bell South at the time. And so I reached out to one of their VPs and I said, hey, I need a job where I'm not traveling as much. And he goes, Mark, he goes, I have the perfect job for you, but I just need to tell you up front, it's had declining revenue for 27 straight years. And I just wanted the job, so I took it. And it was their oil and gas book of business. So because it was the phone company, everybody used them. And don't just think voice. It was data connectivity at that time. Uh, people may not know this, but you can't run a pipeline or a refinery without data connectivity back to headquarters. And so I was in, I was in, I was in the premier part of the U.S. I was in the Gulf Coast uh, where everybody operated. And so um, long story short, I did really good work for my clients, for all my oil and gas clients. But because I had everything, I was exposed to upstream. I mean, I had people, and this doesn't happen anymore, but I had people like, hey, you want, you want to see what a rig looks like? Come meet me at the heliport on Friday. We'll fly out there. Um, I got exposed to midstream. I did a lot of work with the pipeline companies. I got exposed to downstream, did a bunch of work for the refineries. I spent a lot of time in refineries. Um, I have a TWIC card, which means by the government is now, um, I'm, I've been cleared by Department of Defense to be able to go in sensitive areas like pipelines and, and refineries because that's part of um, national defense um, and the service companies. You know, I spent a lot of time with service companies. Halliburton loved me. We did a lot of good work for them. So I got a chance to see mud plants and uh, through tubing services and coil tubing services like in person. So that was my entry into the oil and gas industry. And the nice thing that I'm so blessed to have had is I got exposed to all four segments equally. And so I got to see and be able to piece together. It's like, ah, this is what upstream does, but they can't do it without people doing the work. And that's what the service companies do. They come do the work in upstream, and then they got to move it. That's what the pipeline guys do. And they deliver it to a refinery. Oh, they turn it into plastics and fuel. So I got to see the entire industry from one end to the beginning in the very beginning. And that's helped me a lot in my career. Me too. Give us a war. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Give us a war story. Oh, do we have time for a war story? Oh, we have time for a war story. So one of the one of my favorite, and I'm not calling it a war story. It, it shows the heart that's still in this industry. When Hurricane Katrina happened, um, I was not in Bell South Territory. I was not in Louisiana. I was here in Texas. And I was the only rep that anybody could reach out to. And then quite honestly, nothing against the Sprint and the AT&T and the MCI guys back at that time. But because we built our infrastructure in Hurricane Alley, it was all underground. So we had the only infrastructure that was up and still working, right? So everybody else's infrastructure was down. So I was the only person that anybody could get a hold of to try to get connectivity. And, and what people don't understand is even Bell South, who had over 100-year um, history in Hurricane Alley in Louisiana, had never prepared for the wrath of Katrina. So we had a trouble. We, so I ended up doing stuff with handshakes, right? No contracts, nothing. Stuff that broke FCC rules and company policy. But I got connectivity. I mean, I literally pulled people out of retirement, started doing microwave shots from our CO um, on Poydre Street, which was lit. Um, we had power and all that sort of stuff. We actually had um, a service base on the third floor because I engineers 90 years ago when they built that building knew that if New Orleans ever flooded, we'd have to have bays on the third floor to, to ferry and surprise. 
And um, I got a bunch of guys get a spool of fiber, went out to the Chevron refinery in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and basically plugged it in with them and drove and with a truck and spooled it on land until we found our next CO. So anyway, we got a bunch of connectivity going. Um, it was crazy, crazy work. And, um, and and we got those refineries up and running again so that the Gulf Coast could have fuel because they were there was no fuel in the Gulf Coast. Um, and what was really cool about that one is all said and done a year later, every one of my clients, every single one of them, the, the Exxons and the Halliburtons and the Slumberjays and the BPs and the Chevrons paid every one of those bills, no questions asked. Um, and it was just it was just great. Um, it's, it shows you the heart of this industry. And a little side note, when all that was over, I got called back into our corporate office in Atlanta. I got called into the COO's office and he had this old dot matrix. I don't know if you remember dot matrix numbers, green, white stripe printouts and had holes in the side. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then did it, did it, did it, did it. Yeah. He had this dot matrix sheet and it went to the floor and he had a red pen and he was reading it and he goes, broke company policy, broke company policy, broke FCC rule, broke company policy. And when I first walked in, I thought I was going to get in trouble. And then as he went, it's like, I'm going to get fired. And then he kept going. It's like, I'm going to go to jail. When it was all said and done, he put it down. He looked at me straight now. He goes, Mark, I am happy to have you on my team. He goes, if you would have done this at any time other than this type of natural disaster, you'd be out of here. He goes, but you did the right thing. And I just, I love that. Yes, war stories from Mark LaCour. We got to get some more of those on the show. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, we did have time for that. So, but uh, we, I started with the, with the segue uh, over to market growth because oil and gas security and service market to grow. And this is looking forward to 2020. So what's going on? Yeah, so we talked about this in our forecast too. So the oil and gas industry has become more digital. So there's more points of entry for the bad guys. Cybersecurity up until just recently was something only the, the CIO and his CSO worried about. Nobody in Chevron in the business side worried about cybersecurity. I'm not going to give uh, specific incidences, but in the last couple of years, there have been some major state-sponsored cybersecurity issues in oil and gas. When I say state-sponsored, it used to be some kids in upper Iowa who were bored would try to hack into Chevron. Now, it's some of the smartest people in the world working for some foreign governments looking for predominantly financial data, and they're good. They're really good. And they're being propped up by the state. So they have the top resources, the top computers, the top internet access, the top money to try to break into this. And it's happened. There's been some instances in the industry. So now the business is worried about cybersecurity. So you go talk to an operations manager at Saudi Aramco um, or at Petrobras or at Exxon, and he knows what cybersecurity is, and he's worried about it. So this is a um, – and that was one of our, our um, predictions for, for, for that we did for 2016, that um, technology such as cybersecurity is going to be a major business driver. And this is just an article showing how not only has that become a major business driver, but the amount of money and resources that the business is willing to spend to protect itself is going through the roof. So you went from a market that was almost non-existent 10 years ago to now there's some serious money to be made in cybersecurity in oil and gas. Yeah, North America accounts for the largest market share of 35.29% of the overall oil and gas security market in 2015. And this is just going to keep on growing. Interestingly enough, you just mentioned in terms of the guy that would know about that. You just gave a sales tip to anyone who's, who, who sells cybersecurity into oil and yeah. gas. Yeah, don't go talk to IT. Go talk to the business. Talk about the impact. So let me, let me give you a good, I mean, a real case scenario. So pipelines, which are growing in this country, used to be analog, right? And what I mean by that is you had remote valves, but the connection was a dedicated SCADA circuit 
right? An analog circuit that went from that valve back to headquarters. And the only way you could hack that is literally drive out to the pipeline, find those wires and tap into it, right? That's hard. So what's happened now is that same pipeline, that new pipeline has a bunch of digital entry points. So that valve is still there, but now it has a digital interface. That digital interface connects to either intranet, so a private uh, network, or it actually connects to the public intranet with an encrypted tunnel. Both of those can be hacked from the outside without anybody physically being there. And think about how many thousands of valves and pumps and lift stations are on a single pipeline. And think about the thousands of pipelines that are being built in the U.S. All of a sudden, the entry points for the bad guys have, have grown immensely. So, um, you know, if, if you're uh, uh, IT security, if, if you sell IT security of any type, don't go talk to IT. Go talk to the business. Go talk to that the operations manager at Kinder Morgan who, who will get uh, his bonus will be affected if somebody hacks a pipeline and shuts down uh, flow. He gets it. Yeah, he's the one that's personally affected by that problem, not the IT people. Yeah, and you'll still have to interface with IT, um, but it's a different conversation. Instead of them controlling the conversation in the cell, they're there to support you, <laughs> quite frankly, because once the business buys into it, who's the only person that has the budget, by the way, in oil and gas, IT has no budget. They're given just enough budget to keep the lights on. And if they want to buy something new, they have to go to the business and explain why they need the money. And they're horrible at explaining to the business why they need the money, as opposed to the business who has millions of dollars of flexible funds that can buy anything it needs that will help their business. And your major competitors are going to be, it says, Semantic Corporation, Honeywell, Microsoft, Siemens, and UTC? That's that's the big companies that are in this place, but there's you know several hundred much smaller companies that have very specific um, products out there. Um, there's even some um, government companies like uh, Lockheed Martin. I had an incident a couple years ago that I'm not going to tell you the details where uh, a major knock um, got hacked and they could not figure out how. And Lockheed Martin had to come in with some artificial intelligence and they figured it out. Artificial intelligence to solve the... Okay, that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you said you don't want to give the details, so we'll I, I move on. No I, no, I understand. Non-disclosure. I understand. Why deep water drilling could be dying clickbait headline. Let's go. I love this article. So the, the, the title is a bit inflammatory. Um, common sense tell you that deep water is going to be pushed back because it's one of the most expensive. Um, behind, it's right, I think it's right behind the oil sands as far as expensive oil to get out of the ground. But if you actually read this article, um, it talks about these players that are getting out of deep water. Well, these players, quite frankly, suck at deep water. It has not been their <laughs> core business. I mean, ConocoPhillips and Apache and Devon Energy, those aren't deep water players. They've, they recently got into it, and now they're exiting because it's not their core business. When you want to talk deep water, you need to talk about Statoil or Shell or Exxon or Chevron. Those are deep water players. And those, the bigger players are not pulling out of deep water. They're pushing projects out. Um, Chevron's actually doing some stuff in the Gulf of Mexico, which I think is pretty cool, which they're actually buying deep water leases right now because they know that they're devalued. So um, the, the, the title of this article is somewhat correct, but if you read the context, the, the players, the independents are talking about are, are not deep water players. They're land players who got into deep water. So, of course, they're going to be the first ones to pull out. No pun intended. Hi-oh. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about that, though. How – how is it? How is it that three really good performers on land can get out there in deep water and just not bring it home? Uh, it's that not their core competency. Let me switch it around. Um, other than Exxon, who bought XTO, the big deep water players who tried on land have also exited. 
you know, Shell, Chevron, they're, they're not good on in the frack fields because it's not their core competency. They're deep water players. Or I shouldn't say deep water. They're offshore players, and deep water is one of their core competencies. Um, Apache, Devon Energy, ConocoPhillips, th- these aren't offshore players, um, much less deep water. And so what they did, they stuck their finger in it when it was $100 a barrel. Um, you know, they can't run it as efficiently. They don't have the depth of deep water engineers, subsea engineers that, that the other guys have. So it's just not cost effective for them. So they, they basically, it'd be like me taking modal point and go trying to do market research in, in the medical field. I, I don't know jack about medical. I couldn't do that. And it's, it's the same thing with them. Let's uh, let's let's pick apart this graph a little bit because there's a there's a pretty interesting graph on here. And by the way, all of the stories that we talk about on the show, and then if you want to look at this graph as well, um, everything is linked at triberocket.com forward slash tw41 on this one. So, uh, winning portfolio, increasing flexibility and in returns, decreasing cost of supply. Can you break this down for us a little bit? Yeah, so it's basically showing the different types of plays. So think of um, oil sands, a conventional reservoir on land, conventional reservoir offshore, deep water, ultra deep water. And when you look at those those different um, methods of getting oil on the ground, this graph is talking about what, which has the most flexible growth, which ones has the lowest cost of getting oil out the ground, um, and and which one has the most stable cl- cash flow, you know, over over the life of that well. So when you look at that, the um, the um, oil sands and uh, deep water are on the far left of the graph, which means they have a higher cost of supply, less flexible growth, um, um, and not as competitive of cost. And you look to the right of the graph, and North American unconventionals, which are the shell plays, and then the conventionals, uh, both on land and on, on water, um, are, are kind of in the middle. And this is something we've talked about before. You have the expensive oil to get it out of the ground, which all sands the, is the most expensive. You have the cheapest oil to get out of the ground, which is conventional reservoirs on land, and everything else falls in the middle somewhere. In, interestingly enough, for me, oil sands is above, it is in the same quadrant, if you will, as LNG. Can you, yeah, that, that's because LNG plants aren't built yet. Let them let, let all those plants get spooled up, and you see LNG like for pennies, for pennies, being able to um, to be able to, to provide that supply. So it's because of it's because they're the refineries aren't there. It because the LNG plants aren't there. There, oh, the there's one big one lit in uh, Australia, and we have last time I looked, I think sixteen either un- under construction or permitted here in the U.S. with probably about eight more to go. And so once those things get spooled up, um, it, it's it's the prices could drop dramatically. Got it. So that will go up. Well, w- w- would it move up and to the right, or where would it be? Yeah, up? it would move up to the right, it, and and it would probably it's actually going to be probably parallel to the conventional reservoir drilling on land. It's going to be that cheap. Wow. All right. So, folks, again, if you wanted to see that, and hey, looks like by the way, this is a Conical Phillips slide. Thank you, Conical Phillips, for your slide. Um, it's at triberocket.com forward slash TW41 Marathon abandons 270 million ultra deep water project. So is Marathon another one of these players? Yeah, Marathon's not a deep water player, right? They they when oil's $100 a barrel, they knew they could make money at it. Um, and, and let me explain something here. A lot of people don't understand this. So when you're talking deep water, so somebody buys that lease wherever it is in the world, right? And, and that's the operator. So that's the BP or the Chevron or whatever. But they don't own a single drill rig anywhere, right? So now they have to lease a drill rig. So they'll lease a drill rig from somebody like TransOcean or Noble. That deep water modern drill rig is a million dollars a day. It's day rate. 
So wow. think about it. Wow. Yeah, you just paid one to two billion dollars for a lease. Billion with a B. Now you have to go rent a rig for a million dollars a day. All right. So you have a million dollars a day going out the door. You haven't even done anything yet. Now you have to crew that rig. You don't crew it with people from BP. There's one BP guy on that rig. He's called the company man. The rest are workers from the service companies, the Slumberjays, the Halliburtons, the Bakers, the Weatherfords. Well, that's 600000 a day. So you got, you know, say $1.5 billion out the door for the lease, and you got $1.6 million a day going out, and you haven't even drilled yet. So that's that world takes a lot of capital, a lot of very strategic project management. Um, Exxon is the king of that, of, of all the people out there. Nothing against my friends at Chevron and, and you know, um, Petrobras and Statoil, but Exxon is just a project, deep water project management monster. Um, and then you have to hope that you make money. Only about 70% of the deep water plays are profitable. So imagine spending that type of money and having to go back to your manager and go, hey, you know, you know that $7 billion we spent out in <laughs> Delta, Mexico? Eh, we lost it. I mean, so when you look at smaller companies out there, and there's one exception, which is a log out there, and I love those guys. Those guys are like magical. They're a small, independent deep water operator. Now, after me explaining what half the cost in deep water, the word small and independent should never go along with deep water because it doesn't fit, but they manage to pull it off. But other than log, these uh, independents just don't have the depth of knowledge or the capital to be successful in deep water at you know sub $40 a barrel. It's interesting to me that they bring out, it says Marathon's dry hole puts a chill on interest, da-da-da-da. So one dry hole. Yeah, and so I, I just told you, you know, 70% of the wells out there aren't commercially viable, which means for every 10 wells you drill, you could have three dry holes. And they're misusing the word dry hole. This was not a dry hole. They hit oil and gas. It just wasn't economically viable. Got it. Thanks for breaking that down. Schlumberger Cameron deal versus Halliburton Baker Hughes merger part one. This is uh, th- this is just a battle royale. So what's going on? Yeah, it's uh, Doug Nathan wrote this uh, article, and you know, hats off, Doug. It's a very well written article. Um, but what most people don't understand, those two mergers were completely different. I mean, they're not even in the same universe. So Halliburton bought Baker Hughes because they basically bought their competitor, right? And they wanted their competitor's market share, right? Schlumberger bought Cameron to add to their portfolio. Schlumberger is not a subsea manufacturer. They're a subsea service company. So it just makes sense for them to add the manufacturing capacity to their business. Um, of the two, the Schlumberger Cameron one, um, they did a very good job of keeping it secret for me. Not that you know these companies reach out to me and ask for my advice, but... I didn't see it coming. I can kick myself in the butt because I should have saw it coming because a couple of years ago, they formed a joint venture with Cameron called One Sub C. And what they were really doing is testing the market viability of this. And I should have realized that, and I didn't. Um, and they kept this very hush-hush as opposed to Halliburton Baker Hughes. I've been hearing about this for years. Um, but this is a very well-written article. Um, he talks about the differences in the two mergers, um, but, but they're, just, they're just two totally different beasts. Like wow. you can't compare them because the 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 business drivers are just radically different. But he he's directly comparing them. So I I, I want to I want to dig into this a little bit here because it, the, the, in this series we aim to compare dot 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 and show why we think Schlumberger will continue to be the market leader. So they're they're pretty much putting Schlumberger up against Halliburton. Yeah, but what 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 they're missing here is when you look at. Um, uh, gross sales. Of course, Schlumberger is going to be the leader because now Schlumberger is in the service market and in the subsea manufacturing market. 
Halliburton, when they acquire Baker Hughes, is still just going to be in the service market. They're, they're not going to be in the subsea manufacturing market. So, so of course, it's going to be bigger. It would be like if Modal Point decided to get into the legal market. Well, of course, I'm going to be bigger because now I have two different um, verticals that I'm selling into. So, it's, it, you know, he's comparing these two deals, but you really can't. Yeah, of course, you can compare them from a shareholder values investment point of view. And his conclusions, I think, are spot on. But as far as comparing the business, it's, it's not even the same universe. Got it. Well, yeah, but that's so interesting to look at it from from that angle because um, I get so you say so you say his 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 conclusions are spot on, but from the business driver side of things, is there is there anything from the more strategic side of things that could impact the the way that you would decide to put your money in one of these companies? Um, it depends whether you're a long-term investor or short-term investor. The Halliburton Baker Hughes thing is is getting mirrored down in Department of Justice stuff. So short-term wise, um, it probably is not a good place to put your money. The Schlumberger Cameron thing, um, because they're two different businesses, looks like it's going to go through relatively quickly. So short-term wise, it's probably a better place to put your money. Long-term wise, it's it's you know it you know we talked about our one of our predictions in 2016 is we're being a hydrocarbon abundant world. Slumberger's purchase of Cameron means that Slumberger is putting some money into uh, deep water, right? So all the trees and blowout preventers and all that stuff that Cameron makes, they put money in in the future that's going to be needed. And is deep water going to be commercially viable for the next 50 years with the advent of the well stim- existing well stimulation technologies like fracking? That's, that's, that's a hard one to – even for me, I'm, I don't think I'm going to call that one yet. I think it's too early to tell. Yeah, disclaimer – Mark Lacour is is not a a stock analyst and don't don't if you lose money it's not his fault yeah, or mine, mine or mine definitely not mine. <laughs> um, all right, uh, let's let's round off with this one. Midland reporter Telegram refineries due for an upgrade with touchscreens and HD monitors among the offerings. Yeah, so because refining is doing so well, they're upgrading their technology so they can be more efficient. Um, and this is just an article. Um, Honeywell is real big in this. Honeywell actually has a customer excellence center here in Houston where they showcase all of this. And I was so lucky to be able to arrange a tour for my API young professionals. So a few weeks ago, we so talked is about that picture show. where you were because that looks awesome. Yeah, that so that is actually where we that was actually where we were. That picture is where my young professionals were. Um, and so I was so lucky they were able to get a private tour and Honeywell talked them through this. And this is what the future is going to look like. This is going to allow operators, instead of looking at analog gauges and dials and having to figure stuff out, they're going to be able to look into real-time, data-driven, graphical displays. I mean, literally, they'll be able to see the flow of products to and from. They'll, their displays will let them know if there's a problem somewhere and what their possible solutions are. So this is refining you know, 2.0, where technology is going to just help make refining so much more uh, efficient and, and, um, you know, and, and easy for the refiners and the operators, the operators and the refiners. So the cool thing about this, if you think about this long term, you could conceivably in the future uh, be controlling a refinery in uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, while you're sitting in Des Moines, Iowa. How cool is that? <laughs> about the refineries be shortage of labor. Well, now it's going to open up the world to them to be able to find labor anywhere that you have internet connectivity. Yeah, and and we talk a lot about resistance to change. One of the quotes that jumps out here, plant operators are very resistant to change. Change is seen as negative. We can unpack that. But to follow up on that, within 15 minutes, they're converts. Yeah, it, it, and that's the thing about this industry. You know, a lot of time with our techn- technical clients, we do something called a proof of concept. So 
whenever you bring something new to this industry, especially technology, there's an automatic resistance to change, not because they're old fashioned, but because they're, they're risk adverse. Because if you make a mistake in this industry, people die. And one of the ways we get around it is we actually do something called a proof of concept where our clients work hand in hand with their, their, their prospects team to, sh to implement on a very small scale their technology. And what happens if you do this well, then the clients, the prospects own people. So, you know, the refineries own people see the benefit of the technology and they're won over. And then guess who sells it to the rest of the, the, the uh, company? Your it's client. their own people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what they're talking about here. You know, Honeywell's doing a good job of doing proof of concepts. And within 15 minutes, they get it and they want to buy it. That's awesome. Well, thus, thus concludes our, our regular, uh, our regular stuff. Now I, I texted you my onion of the week yesterday. I, I, I don't know if you enjoyed it nearly as much as I did. Well, you know I didn't enjoy it as much as you did. <laughs> John Roberts delivers finishing blow to Stephen Breyer to defend title of chief justice. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to laugh at you not laughing. All right. Um, all right. There are no events. Let's talk about that because there's no events. Yeah, it's um the oil and gas industry historically shuts down <laughs> the first week of December till the second week of January. Lately in the U.S., people still show up at the office, but the truth is everybody's budget's gone. Uh, next year's budget won't be released till you know mid January or so. And overseas, like go to Brazil and the Middle East, they don't even open the offices. It's not even worth the time. So uh, no events going on. Um, you know, we wish uh, everybody out there a great holiday season. I know it's politically incorrect, but you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Um, we have some more shows coming out before the end of the year, so stay tuned. But um, this is just a good time to remember what's important and spend time with friends and family. Yeah, and, and what's important is the fact that we have no reviews. <laughs> we have no reviews. Wait, no, that can't be true. Is that true? No, we have no new reviews. Okay, so folks, if um, if you like this show, we don't charge you for it, right? We do this for free, and it's much, much more work than it seems, trust me. So um, if you enjoy the show, will you please, please do me a favor? Take the minute and a half it takes to go to iTunes. Give us a review. And what this does is basically iTunes is a search engine. Your review elevates our show so that other people just like you can find it and get useful. So please, please, please go give us a review. Yeah. Thank you very much. If you if you give us a review, even if it's even if it's I hate James and love Mark, we're getting more and more of those. Just by all means, trybrocket.com forward slash tw reviews will take you straight there and like mark said it takes you 60 seconds and you just click the five or the one whatever works for you linkedin group uh, I, i've been adding some some daily quotes to the linkedin group and shout out to brian man oil man as he is on twitter because everyone who listens to this show long enough or who has talked to me for roughly seven seconds knows I love Jim Rohn. And so I was posting a lot of his quotes in there and he said, what about oil field quotes? And so I just started yesterday. And so I'm going to be dropping a, a gem a day from the oil field into the LinkedIn group. And so we started off with Mr. Wallace Pratt, where oil is first found is in the minds of men. And and Mark thinks he stole that. But <laughs> no, no, no disrespect, Mr. Pratt. Um, but yeah, so folks, you said if, uh, Hemingway though. Yeah. Folks, if you uh, listen to the show, we have a sister to the show, right? It's our LinkedIn uh, group. Go join. It's an awesome group. Um, it take you, I don't know, 30 seconds to join and we share. So you have all your peers in here. Um, we, we bounce ideas off each other. I see people sharing contacts. Um, if anybody gets stuck with something, we help you. Um, James jumps in all the time and actually I've seen him write copy or help people understand marketing. So, um, take a few minutes, join our group. You'll be glad you did. 
Yeah, triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn on that one. And we are, of course, brought to you by Red Wing, our, our charter sponsor, if you will, our underwriting sponsor. Um, but we still have spots, two more spots, right, Mark? Yeah, so we have uh, two more spots for 2016. We opened the the sponsorship up in November and rapidly sold out all of our underwriting sponsor for the entire year, even though it's not 2016 yet. We have two more spots left open. I think we have a verbal on one, so you know there's at least one left. So if you're interested in getting your company's product or services in front of a 100% oil and gas audience, reach out to James and I and let's talk about it. And our contact information is in all of the show notes, which we've talked about before, triberocket.com forward slash TW41. Um, I'm trying to think if we have anything else. I think I think that about concludes it for now. Yeah, it's uh, so folks, as we're moving toward the end of the year, James and I are going to have probably a couple special episodes that aren't the typical news. So look out for that. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, we're going to have some fun with that. And, and we might be recording them this morning. <laughs> might be. We might be. Somebody has a trip into Minnesota. Minnesota? Minnesota? Sorry, Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. 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 Although maybe I swing by Minnesota and go and see uh, go and see our people up at Red Wing. Hey, that might not be a bad idea. That might not be a bad idea. So so thank you very much to Red Wing. Thank you very much to all of y'all for tuning in uh, to echo what Mark said. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And I'll have to, to drop um, some run DMC into the show notes as well. All right, Mark, let's get out of here. Yeah, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Brought to you by Red Wing Shoes. No, I'm just saying Red Wing, right? Yeah. Yeah.